0: the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore what we can do to treat our conditions to live more fulfilling lives. As a friendly reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes, not for medical advice. If you have questions or patient advocacy needs, please feel free to email us at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com, or follow us on Instagram, hypermobilityhhgram, or Twitter, hypermobilityhh. Today, we're very happy to be speaking again with Dr. Pradeep Chopra, this time about the relationship between hypermobility conditions and EDS and common comorbidities like mast cell activation syndrome and postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, or POTS. Dr. Chopra completed an anesthesiology residency at Harvard Medical School and went on to complete a Fellowship in Pain Management, also from Harvard. Dr. Chopra is double board certified in pain management and anesthesiology by the American Board of Anesthesiology. Currently, Dr. Chopra holds the appointment of clinical professor, assistant clinical, assistant professor clinical at the Department of Medicine at Brown Medical School, as well as an adjunct professorship of anesthesiology at Brown University School of Medicine. Dr. Chopra has won numerous awards commemorating his achievements and his approach to treating his patients. The list is far too long to go through here, but we'll include a link to his website in the episode notes, which has a complete list. Dr. Chopra is also the author of several publications on chronic pain, including book chapters and academic articles. Dr. Chopra, hello, and thank you for joining us again.
1: Hi, Kerry. Nice to meet you again. Uh, it's again uh, all, as a, as as always, it's a pleasure to be um, on your podcast. And um, anything that I can do to help your listeners.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's always a pleasure speaking with you as well. Um, so today we're going to be covering two common comorbidities uh, that occur with EDS frequently and hypermobility conditions: mast cell activation syndrome and postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, better known as POTS. Let's start out with mast cell activation. Although many of our listeners are very familiar with mast cell activation, let's make sure we all start out on the same page. Can you briefly, in a nutshell, describe what is mast cell activation and how it's diagnosed?
1: Mast cell activation syndrome um, is, is really just your, your mast cells going haywire. Uh, what that means is that we all have mast cells in our body, and these mast cells are there to protect us. Um, for example, if I were to um, if I were to get injured, like for example, if I stick a pin in my finger and it gets infected, or not just infected, but just a trauma from the pin itself, then my immune system sets off an alarm, which then activates the mast cells. These mast cells are generally there in an inactive state. And when the immune system uh, realizes there's there's some sort of a danger, it activates the mast cells, much like the National Guard. And these mast cells contain granules. They they have little pockets. And these pockets or these uh, granules contain different chemicals. Um, In fact, there are about 200 different chemicals. these muscles then flood into that, into my finger where I, where I stuck a needle and they then start to degranulate, which means they start to break down and release these chemicals. And these chemicals then fight any sort of an infect, infection, but on in the process, they cause what is called an called inflammation and inflammation consists of swelling, pain, redness. And so that's in sense, in a sense, uh, an inflammatory response. Now, <clears throat> in EDS, what happens is there's no pin being stuck in anybody, uh, but in EDS, these mast cells are just not behaving. That's it; uh, they just are not behaving, and we're not quite sure why. Uh, and there's there's some debate about does mast cell make mast cell activation syndrome make EDS worse, or does EDS cause these mast cells to get more activated? We don't know. But we do know that these mast cells cells, uh, are misbehaving in in EDS. So there's no pin being stuck, there's no trauma, but they're still sort of flooding different parts of the body, causing this inflammatory response. In terms of diagnosis, um, there's a lot of controversy around that. Um, initially, when reports came out, they said, well, we should just test these patients for these chemicals that are being, that are coming out of the granules. So we should check for histamine levels and tryptase levels and all that. Unfortunately, that didn't pan out. Um, it's very difficult to get a, a positive blood test or a urine test in these pa- in patients with mast cell activation syndrome. The reason being that the life of histamine is mere seconds, and one has to get this blood test done while they are having a flare-up, which means um, in order to get the blood test, they have to stop all their medicines, um, medicines that they're also taking for mast cell, wait for a flare-up, and when they have a flare-up, that's when they have to go to the lab and get a blood drawn and collect their urine samples. Not only that, once the blood is drawn, it has to be refrigerated immediately—not almost immediately, but immediately. Which means they have few seconds to uh, refrigerate this blood and urine, because if you leave it on the table for even a few seconds, it starts to histamine starts to dis starts to disappear. Once you put it in the refrigerator, then these samples are sent off, shipped off to. Um, I believe there are two labs in the in the U.S. that test these, and which means there's a whole chain uh, that has to be followed where the samples have to be kept frozen to get to the labs. And there can be a problem anywhere along this. So we don't, um, so the, there were guidelines that came out that said, you know, if you don't get a positive test, that doesn't mean that the patient does not have mast cell activation syndrome. Um, But if you meet the clinical criteria, if you meet all the clinical symptoms and signs that patients have of mast cell activation, and then you treat them for mast cell activation, and they do respond to the treatment, then they have mast cell activation syndrome. So that was the criteria, which to me makes the most sense. Um, I don't really subject patients to blood tests and urine tests for mast cell activation syndrome. I have a series of questions um, and I have them answer them. And if they've answered most of them as yes, and it looks like mast cell activation syndrome, then I start the treatment. And if they respond to it, then we're pretty sure it is mast cell activation syndrome. If it walks like a duck, if it talks like a duck, it must be mast cell activation syndrome. There is, however, one test um, that, is a little more uh, is a little more e- confirmatory. Uh, if somebody's had a biopsy of their GI tract, like if they had an endoscopy or a colonoscopy, and the gastroenterologist saw some areas of inflammation and plucked a biopsy off that area, then <clears throat> that tissue can be um, can be tested for mast cells. And the criteria for that is you have to it's, it's they don't routinely test for it so you'll have to ask the pathologist to do it and what i ask them or your doctors can ask for is a cd 117 stain so it's called the cd 117 stain and and then you have to ask the pathologist to comment about how many mass cells were seen per high power field So under the microscope you see a high power field and they count how many masses they were able to see and then they are and then we also asked i asked them to comment about the morphology which means what do they look like are they misshapen are they spiky or they do look they do they look weird Uh, um so the the only problem with this is that we don't know what a normal Mast cell count is under hyper per high power field. But in general, we, if you see a very high amount, in my, in my, most of us who diagnose this look for high power, if there are more than 20 to 30 mast cells per high power field, that's quite a lot. And very often I'll see 40 mast cells per high power field. Um, the reason why I ask the pathologist to comment about the number of mast cells is because sometimes they don't realize that and they'll say well the number of mast cells were normal and but we still want to know what the actual number were and that gives you an idea it's not a perfect science but with the clinical symptoms clinical signs and response to treatment and a a biopsy sample with a CD117, all of these can help you diagnose mast cell activation syndrome.
0: That's a great overview. Thank you. And yeah, many patients struggle to get a diagnosis because finding that elevated tryptase or looking at the histamine can be so temporary and it can be so difficult to get to a facility within that window and then, even more difficult to find a facility that actually knows how to do this testing properly. Um, so it's it's extremely difficult. Um, and and I think like what you said makes sense. If if people have the symptoms and then they respond to the basic treatment, that's a that's a great way of looking at it. Um, for anyone out there who has persistently elevated tryptase, um, like unfortunately, I've experienced. Um, there is a test, um, for a gene for hereditary alpha tryptosemia to, take a look at that. And I think there's only maybe one, the last time I checked, there was one lab in the country that does that. So if anybody has persistently elevated tryptase, like outside of having reactions, just all the time elevated, um, feel free to reach out to me. Um, and I can help you figure out how to get that genetic test if you're interested. Um, but back Back to you, Um, in your observation, and your practice, Dr. Chopra, um, what is the relationship between MCAS and EDS and hypermobility? You see many patients with EDS and hypermobility, and uh, I know it can be hard to kind of ballpark, but approximately how many of those patients also have issues with mast cell?
1: So Kerry, just before we go on to, I just wanted to address the alpha tryptosemia that you you addressed. Mm -hmm. um, we, we it's, a, it's a condition that hereditary alpha tryptosemia is something that um, we're starting to see. Um, it's a recent uh, discovery and it's, w- whether it's it's related to EDS or not, we still don't know. Um, we do know that these people have ele- elevated, it's, it runs in the family, everybody in the family will have this gene uh, alteration and that that can be shown as a elevated tryp- tryptase mm-hmm. level. And the reason this is important is because it mimics mass cell activation syndrome in a lot of ways. So uh, it's something to look at. Um, to answer your question, there is a relationship. Uh, so almost, I don't have the exact numbers, but a, an extremely high percentage of patients with um, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and hypermobility have mass cell activation syndrome. Um, just to give an example tryptase so these mast cells one of the enzymes they they produce over different 200 different uh, mediators and they <clears throat> these mediators can cause inflammation and this inflammation can cause symptoms of EDS to worsen so <laughs> a patient with hypermobility of the joints they experience far more pain when they have a mcas flare-up for example um let's say my wrist my left wrist hurts um because of eds and let's just to give it a number say it's 4 or 10 on a on an average day if i have an mcas flare-up if my mast cells flare up then that 4 becomes 9 and it's not that my EDS got worse, but because MCAS, muscle Cell Activation Syndrome, causes inflammation, so now my left wrist is inflamed because of muscle Cell Activation Syndrome. Now, the, the thing this is important to know because, you know, people with EDS do have flare-ups, and is that flare-up because of Mass Cell Activation Syndrome? And if it is, then uh, treating the Mass Cell Activation Syndrome aggressively will bring that pain down from nine to back to four and uh, so uh, this is this is mcas is is an extremely common condition in eds in fact i should say if i don't see a patient who has mast cell in eds i'm I'm, i always get surprised Uh, so almost everybody with eds has mast cell activation syndrome in one to a certain degree or other
0: That's surprising and shocking to see that it's that high of a, um, a a coincidence. Although it sort of makes sense with my understanding. My understanding is that although um, mast cells are part of the immune system, they're kind of embedded in the connective tissue and embedded in tissue throughout the body. Um, so I wonder if the lax connective tissue that's associated with hypermobility and EDS results in those mast cells being triggered or you know tweaked, kind of activated more often, but that's definitely, that's a very interesting observation. Um, what are the most common mast cell related symptoms that you see in your practice and how do you go about treating them? I know it's very different from patient to patient, but any general kind of observations and approaches?
1: So the common symptoms of mast cell activation syndrome, you can actually put it in one sentence. If you feel like you're getting flu-like symptoms, you feel tired, you feel achy, everything hurts, you're cold, you're hot, and you just wanna curl up and stay in bed, that's probably a flare up of your mast cell. So it almost feels like you're coming down with some sort of a flu-like reaction which is true because in flu you do your muscles do get activated um but in general um there are mixed um there people have different symptoms to different degrees but oftentimes they'll have unexplained rashes itching Um, it can cause headaches um it can cause what is called dermatographism where you take a blunt pen or a pencil and you can actually draw a line on your skin and it shows up as a red line or a red streak. Um, they have uh, dryness in their eyes. Um, they, i trying to remember um, all the symptoms. Give me one second, I should have them here. They do, uh, they react they're, they're very chemically sensitive they react to different chemicals very easily uh, they they present with headaches these headaches now people with EDS have all all sorts of reasons for having headaches but the mast cell headache is often in the front of the f- head it's, it's a frontal headache um, it's more like a sinus headache um, they have they they have sweating they wake up sweating in the morning. They get flushing after a hot shower. So any sudden temperature change will cause flushing. So if they, once you come out of a warm shower into the cold bathroom, they'll see flushing. Um, it does cause brain fog. Um, it does cause belly discomfort. So this is one of the, one of the biggest reasons why patients with um, EDS have belly pain, abdominal pain is because of mast cell. It's a very diffuse kind of a pain. They alternate between diarrhea and constipation they have lots of fatigue remember I said it said it looks like a flu-like symptom so they have lots mm-hmm. of fatigue um, these symptoms do get worse in during their periods um, <clears throat> they have abnormal weight gain or weight loss or weight fluctuation acid reflux nausea um, they may have burning, unexplained burning when they pee. They may have pain in their bladder. Uh, but in general, these are some of the symptoms of MASSEL that we look for.
0: That's a great overview. Thanks, and I know it's incredibly complex and it's hard to kind of pin this down to a few nutshells, but um, yeah, that's entirely consistent with, I guess, what I've read and what I understand. Um, although mast cell issues can range widely, as we've discussed, do you have a general treatment protocol that you like to follow, or um, is it really symptom dependent?
1: No, there's a there's a treatment protocol I follow. Um, so <clears throat> it's in three parts. The first part is to uh, take care of the histamine, so you take antihistamines. There are two kinds of antihistamines. Um, uh, h1 and h2 uh, blockers the only h2 blocker we have right now is called uh, famotidine sold in this market as uh, pepcid and the h1 blockers are literally any cold medicine starting from Benadryl to Zyrtec to um, Allegra these are all cold medicines these are h1 blockers um, <clears throat> so antihistamines would be definitely pepcid plus uh something like Zyrtec or Benadryl then the second part of 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 the treatment is using mast cell stabilizers and there are three of them two of them are prescription and one of them is over the counter the one that's over the counter is called Curcetin. It's spelled as q-u-e-r-c-e-t-i-n it's about 500 milligrams twice a day you can get it on Amazon Curcetin is uh, made out of pineapple so I call this pineapple in a pill uh the other two are ketotepin and chromolin ketotepin um is usually available only in the United States it's only available in um in certain compounding pharmacies uh but in other countries it's available free like for for example in Canada you can get it as a pill um prescription the the third drug uh, the third uh, mast cell stabilizer is chromolin uh chromaline comes in different forms you can uh, drink it or you can nebulize it obviously drinking it is much better and that's taken four times a day and so there are three mass cell stabilizers and I usually recommend taking all three because all of these work differently their approach is different and so it's worth taking all three of them the third part is a little more challenging, and the third part, you have to look for triggers. And in my mind, I I think of triggers as something that you're eating or you're breathing. In terms of eating, you look for um, <clears throat> gluten, for example, is a common trigger. Dairy, sugar, meats can do it. Um, <clears throat> all, not all, but most seasonings will do it. Um, and but that again is it varies from person to person but seasonings can trigger mass cells, except olive oil and salt eggs can trigger um eggs can trigger uh mass cells so that's about in terms of foods in terms of something that you might be breathing you'll have to look at uh, the air that you're breathing and are you do your mold in the house is there mold in the basement is there mold in the in the ventilation system that's triggering it is there's something in the carpet that the dog brought in um, and it's growing over there <clears throat> i hate to say this but cats are notorious for triggering mast cells uh, the dog dogs are not as much mm-hmm. and so again you'll have to look at that the way i do that i i recommend to people is if you if you, the way to figure that out is if you go into a room or a certain part of the house and you don't feel too good, then there's probably something in the air that's triggering it. And it could be something that's outside. There might be a bush outside. There might be something growing around your house, some kind of a grass that's triggering your cells. So these are some of the things to look for um, in terms of prevention. Uh, If you don't know, let's say you there's your bedroom When you go into your bedroom and it triggers your mast cells, you don't feel quite well, you know there's something wrong here and you can't pinpoint it. It's just easy to put a HEPA air filter and let it run. Um, <clears throat> if you are also, if, if you feel like every time you go into the basement to do your laundry or something and there's something that's triggering it, wear a face mask and that does help a lot. Um, sometimes when you go into a, place where there's a lot of triggers, like maybe a restaurant, something, there's all sorts of triggers out there. Remember, I told you these people are are have lots of sensitivities. It's better to wear a mask um, as long as you can. So these are some other treatments. If you're having a flare up, let's say you've got your mast cells reasonably under control. Um, there are good days and there are bad days, but you're having more good days, that's fine. But let's say you have a sudden flare up, and one of the things you can do is um, take an extra dose of your Pepsid, take an extra dose of Benadryl, uh, take extra Cromolyn, and um, if it's something in the air that you breathe, then just do a saline a nasal saline wash uh, to wash out any triggers that might be stuck in your nose. So these are some of the options you have in terms of treating mast cell activation. Cell That's device.
0: a great overview, and thank you for all that information. Um, just to kind of underline a few of the points that you made. um, I, Catodafin is the antihistamine that's been the most helpful for me. um, And it is hard to get, you you have to go to compounding pharmacies. Unfortunately, I I don't understand why it's not as widely available here as it is in other places, as I understand it. Um, But it's a good thing to look into. And then the carcetin too is, Incredibly helpful. There's a line of products, I think it's called Algonaut, A L G O N O T, and I think it was developed by Dr. Teoharis Teoharidis, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, who I think is a mast cell specialist. Um, so that can be something to look into. But I know a lot of people who have gotten benefits from kerosetin who just have like seasonal allergies or dry eyes um, or other issues like that. And it seems as far as, you know, I've looked into it, it seems like it's, um, highly beneficial, you know, comes from, uh, like you said, pineapples comes from plants. And, um, I, you know, I, I I've, I've never encountered an adverse reaction with it, not to say that one can occur. Of course, we're all very different, but, um, yeah, those are, those have been really great and helpful for me. And then pointing out that na- nasal saline wash thing, I think is such a great idea. Um, the, there's an arm and hammer spray that gives you like a fine mist into your nose. And I find that that's the most helpful for me because the neti pot can kind of leave residual pockets of water in your face, which is really uncomfortable. And then you lean over like an hour later and water just pours out of your face. And that's not ideal, especially if you're leaning over electronics or paperwork or, or something like that. So, um, that was a really, really great and helpful uh, overview. Thank you for that. Um, what do you think are the best resources out there for patients who want to learn more about mast cell activation syndrome?
1: Kerry, before I answer that question, there's one other thing I wanted to add. So this, this protocol I just mentioned about treating mast cell activation syndrome, that's the most basic protocol. And that's, as you would say, plan, as I say, it's, it's plan A. But there are some patients who ha- just have very severe mast cell activation syndrome, and you know, very related to their immune dysfunction. In that case, I would recommend seeing a specialist uh, for that, because then you get into a lot more, um, a lot more higher drugs, um, and a lot more significant treatment that needs more close monitoring. So, in 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 short, mast cell activation syndrome uh, uh, treatments uh, start from the most basic that I just mentioned, and then it can go on to uh, something more complicated like getting IVIG infusions and things like that. Um, Best resources for learning about mast cell activation syndrome. I actually, uh, just before this podcast, I was sort of wanted to answer that question, and I looked over online. and. I was a little disappointed that there was not much Mm -hmm. um even from the so-called mass cell activation societies and things like that they really had very basic information Mm -hmm. Um, so i would go back to um i would go back to reading disjointed that's been Mm -hmm. published and i would look at some of the webinars that are published on um painpartners.com mm-hmm. by John Furman. Uh, there is a website called painpartners.com, and there are some amazing webinars by some really uh, very good experts on this subject. That's one resource. Another resource, of course, is to look up uh, disjointed. Unfortunately, I did not come across a lot of useful information online on muscle cell activations. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it, it's really remarkable. It's, how little is out there. And I, I think if I recall, right, I think it was only named as a condition in 2003 and there's kind of painfully little out there, but I'm glad you, you reference again, disjointed wonderful resource and John Furman's work is amazing. Um Great to direct people there as well. Um, Cause he's had a lot of experts on there and and great to mention that if you have mast cell symptoms and this kind of baseline, is not taking care of it. There is that extra step that specialists can help with. And I've been hearing a lot about IVIG, um, the immunoglobulin, I think, is it uh, treatments that that can be really helpful. So um, good to know that, you know, if if the basics aren't really cutting it for you, there's, there's another tier, but it's good to work with, uh, really important to work with a specialist in that because Unfortunately, this is a relatively new area of medicine, and um, the vast majority of physicians um, are, it, it, I mean, if, if even the internet doesn't have a lot of great resources, uh, you know, it's a it's a tough spot.
1: <laughs> you know, when I first read the paper, the, it was, I think, about 10 years ago when the first paper was actually published on uh, mast cell activation syndrome. And i came across that and i said no way am i going to ever see a patient with mast cell activation syndrome (laughs) and here i am seeing one every day (laughs) so um yeah you it's it's a you're right it's a relatively new condition that we are starting to recognize and and i've talked to a lot of people about this like you know growing up we never saw mast cell activation syndrome we didn't see people being so sensitive to chemicals and foods and things like that. And, and I think the, I think our environment is starting to change uh, dramatically. And in the sense that, you know, we're, there are a couple of reasons for that. One is um, I think manufacturers are putting more and more junk into their, into, into Mm -hmm. our food. And that's, not something that we are used to and that's the 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 bread that you get now is not the same bread that my grandmother was Mm -hmm. was eating Mm -hmm. it's different and so that changes the microbiome in your intestine Mm -hmm. intestines and that is you know is that triggering your math making us more prone to these chemical sensitivities Uh, that's one of the things i worry about you know if you um, the food that we get in the united states is manufactured food um or processed food is is in some ways so harmful
0: yes
1: i'll give you an example um i i i am gluten sensitive so i don't eat gluten uh, foods um and i was in europe sometime back and i was giving a talk on ads and all that and then And I, as usual, I asked for gluten-free bread and they just looked at me weirdly. And it was just, it was a terrible looking piece of uh, rock that they gave me. And so finally I gave up and I said, you know what, just give me the regular bread. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. So I thought maybe it's me, but I've talked to patients. So I do get patients from Europe and I've, I've talked to them and they don't have a problem as much with gluten as we have here. So is it gluten or is it something that, the, that these manufacturers are including in bread and pasta that's causing these reactions? Uh, pills, for example, uh, red color dye, blue mm-hmm. color dye, these are extremely yes. dangerous. Uh, again, I'll give you another live, live example, Pepsid. So every so often I'll take a Pepsid and the, the original manufacturer for Pepsid manufactures it as a white color pill the brand the the generic version is pink in color and i've noticed so you know when you buy you don't really pay attention to that so i said hey pepsi is pepsi mm-hmm. who cares and and i noticed that anytime i took the pink one i would get a migraine and it, and so i switched to the white one and i found out that i wasn't getting a migraine and again you know we talk about taking red and we talk about taking these uh be very, very, very careful about taking colored dyes. Artificial colored dyes. Natural fruit colors are fine. That's not a problem. So strawberry color coming from strawberries is fine. But adding some chemical to give it that pink color or adding a blue blue color especially is very dangerous. I don't know if you know this, Carrie, but um, in veterinary medicine, color color is color pills are banned. Wow. There was a cross action lawsuit and they're banned. And but so my dog gets cleaner pills than I get.
0: Unbelievable. And the problem is that
1: Yeah. And the problem is that you can't choose your pills. You go to the pharmacy and the pharmacist hands you a a red pill. You can't do anything about it. You can't say, I want the white mm-hmm. version. So it's one of the problems we have. But I want people to be aware that you know if you take a pill and you get a reaction which is not a known reaction from that for example I'll give you an example propranolol if you take propranolol and if the propranolol is red in color and you're having some sort of a strange reaction then it's probably the red color or the binding agent or the preservative in it and that's um, so if you do have an option for your for your listeners uh, opt for color-free foods, color-free, dye-free foods and chemicals as much as you
0: can. That's a great point, And thank you for making it because I've encountered that as well. And I know that's a huge issue. Um, I've reacted to things strangely that seemingly shouldn't react to and then looked into the dyes and I think, what are they called? Excipients, the fillers that they put into stuff. And it, it is incredible it really does seem a lot of the time that the care that's available in the veterinary practice is more attuned to health than than for humans, and that's really disappointing. And so, if there's any uh, aspiring chemists out there or any uh, entrepreneurial students, there certainly is a real need for these basic life-saving medications to be made without the fillers um, that are currently on the market. So great point and and something to know that if you're you know taking a medication like not all generics or not all versions of a medication are are going to be the same and unfortunately you know when we have these conditions we really have to look at all the different ingredients and that can be really hard to do it can be really hard to even figure out what is in a pill but a good clue as you just um mentioned is if it's a different color if it's red or blue um probably might not be for you um so that's certainly something uh that i've noticed as well um and so thanks for mentioning this yes. so
1: Kerry, uh, one of the things and i sh- and i give i want to give you an example of chromolin. Mm-hmm. so chromolin is a liquid it comes in this plastic vial and you pop mm-hmm. up in the vial and you you know you take it and um for the longest time those the plastic was pink in color. Mm and patients are starting to have a reaction to the chromolin. So you're now reacting to the very drug that is supposed to stop the wow. reaction. Um, I, As of now, they've removed the color, so there's no more color in it, but it still comes in a plastic uh, vial. And I worry about it because chemicals from these plastic vials do leach out into these, uh, into yep. these drugs. Um, Chromaline that you get in Canada, for example, comes in a glass vial. And so when I have a patient that reports reacting to um, like their mast cells get worse when they take chromalin which just doesn't add up, um, I do ask them to get their chromalin from abroad. Um, and that makes a big difference.
0: That's a great tip. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, it's it seems like common sense. I mean, I understand glass is a little bit more expensive, but yeah, there are some serious manufacturing issues in the U S and, and I I've noticed what, what you've said before, I'm sensitive to gluten here. And yet when I've, you know, in the past many years ago, been abroad, I don't have nearly the same level of sensitivity. Like when I've visited friends in like Italy, for example. Um, and so, and, and my understanding is there are uh more regulations about what kind of pesticides what can kind of go into um, those substances so it's yeah you are what you eat right or you are what you consume Um and so it's really uh, it's unfortunate that we have to do so much homework and um, and try to figure out you know these basic things that shouldn't be in there
1: one one trick you can try is to buy some of these over-the-counter medicines in the children's mm. section and the pharmacy so you'll do find dye free uh, medicines in the children's section that's
0: a great tip and
1: that's one thing you can look something like Benadryl or some of those things that you can look for is um uh, they're dye free and that that's something that I just don't understand that as a child um, you are you have the option of having dye free drugs, and as soon as the child grows up, now you can give them dyes. That doesn't quite add up. Um, no, it here. makes no
0: sense. But that's a really great tip to check out um, the children's section for for sure. And um, speaking of Benadryl, like switching to dye free Benadryl helped me a lot um, with flares, and I and I wouldn't have as much of the side effects afterwards, but my favorite were those Benadryl quick dissolve tabs that you would just put on your tongue and they would dissolve. But I th- I think those had dye. I can't remember exactly. It's been a long time since those were on the market, but I can't find one of those quick dissolving strips. And, um, you know, I guess maybe it's possible to just break the pill open and put it under your tongue. I'm not sure, but, um, yeah, it seems like we really need some mass cell friendly. And, and frankly, you know, these substances that we're talking about, these dyes, you know, they're not uh, helpful for anyone. I mean, even a perfectly healthy person, you know, this dye is not going to do them any favors, for sure. So I think we need to, you know, w- do whatever we can to kind of avoid these artificial additives. But But those are all great tips for practically trying to avoid them. Um, is there anything else you would like to add from your observations in treating patients with hypermobility, EDS, and mast cell activation issues?
1: Not, not, not that I can think of anything now, but, you know, uh, I have one brain cell, so that one brain cell can only work at certain <laughs> times. When it suddenly wakes up and starts working, I might have another epiphany, and I'll let you
0: know. Well, you definitely have uh, very many brain cells. You are uh, uh, one of the <laughs> smartest, if not the smartest, physician I've ever personally spoken to, um, and and you have the compassion and the passion that goes along with it. Um, but uh, but but the brain fog comes for us for us all, and the kind of you yeah, know it's Friday, it's the uh, end of the day. Um, uh, <laughs> lethargy, um, but uh, so let's switch gears now. Let's talk a little bit about POTS. Um, again, just so we're on the same page, um, could you just give us uh, kind of an overview in in your practice? What is POTS?
1: POTS stands for Postural Orthostatic Tachycardia Syndrome, and um, that's a tongue twister. But POTS is an easier term to use. It comes. It's it it belongs under the umbrella of um, a group of conditions called dysautonomia, which means dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system is a nervous system that we have in our body that functions automatically. We have no control over it, like breathing, your heart beating, your blood pressure control, movement of your intestines, um, focusing. All of these are under an autonomic control system, um, autonomic nerves. And so any dysfunction of this autonomic nervous system is called dysautonomia. And there are a bunch of conditions that fall under dysautonomia and POTS being one of them. Um, And we can talk about POTS, um, but the treatment is pretty much the same for most of these um, other things that fall under dysautonomia like there's something called orthostatic intolerance that's also part of it and <clears throat> now POTS um we'll get into the cause of um POTS later on but essentially uh patients with POTS present with uh, lightheadedness palpitations their heartbeat is um, their heart is beating faster uh that's usually not a huge problem with most patients. They're quite used to it, actually. Um, but the other symptoms that bother them the most are brain fog, fatigue, a sense of anxiety, uh, GI tract issues. Uh, these are the issues that these patients um, are bothersome. <clears throat> and I can get into the reasons later on.
0: That's a great overview. Um, thanks. And uh, in, in your experience, what have been the most useful treatments and or approaches for patients that are experiencing pots?
1: Kerry, the treatment for anything lies in finding out the cause of the problem. So you got to find out what's broken. And in my mind, um, there are there are at least there are a lot of reasons for having pots, uh, but in among the A.D.S. population, the three most common reasons are um, pulling. They pull their blood down their lower extremities. So one of the things we have is, you know, when when I stand, um, when any of us stand, we pull blood down our legs. That's pretty standard because of gravity. And as my as my blood pulls down my legs, um, my nervous system—that's the autonomic nervous system we just talked about kicks in and it rapidly pumps this blood back up to my brain because my brain is a priority for oxygen and this is done by by a bunch of things one is it squeezes the blood vessels and then it causes my heart to run faster so that it pumps this blood to my brain now that's a normal physiology it happens to everyone on this planet Um, In EDS, what happens is they pool more blood because their veins are much more elastic. So you may notice that people with EDS, their feet turn darker when they stand. That's because their veins are more elastic, so they pool more blood, which means that their autonomic nervous system has to work extra hard to pump this blood back to their brain, which that's where it comes from. So when they're lying down and they stand up, it takes time for this nervous system to get this blood back up to their head. And that's the phase when they get that lightheadedness and the heart beating faster, the palpitation. Um, it's not a perfect system, so sometimes it shows up at different times. But these <clears throat> that's one of the reasons why people have POTS. So blood pooling down their legs and their nervous system working extra hard to pump this blood to their brain. The treatment for this is different we'll talk about the treatment in a few minutes um, then the other reason why people have POTS is because of Chiari malformation and craniocervical instability so what happens in Chiari malformation is that their brain stem is, is sort of plugged um, and is compressed and when that happens, that's the center where it controls a lot of our autonomic functions, our automatic functions. So these patients do tend to develop symptoms of POTS. Um, <clears throat> so that's another reason. Obviously the treatment in this case would be treating the carry malformation or the CCI. The third reason why people with EDS develop POTS is because of <clears throat> antibodies to adrenergic receptors. What that means is that we, the way the nervous system works in our body is that it has, it works through a lock and key mechanism. So there's a specific key that fits into a specific lock or a keyhole and it unlocks things and things happen. Um, Sometimes the, the immune system goes haywire and it develops antibodies and destroys these keyholes. And that's when these people develop symptoms of POTS, because now they, the nervous system can't do anything because there's no keyhole. <clears throat> there's a key, but there's no keyhole. And so the treatment for this is to treat the autonomic dysfunction. So th- these are the three reasons for having POTS. There are other reasons that, like Sjogren syndrome, patients can have POTS. And so these are there are other reasons why people can have POTS, but these are some of the more common reasons. And one has to, so for me, I have to, uh, when I see a patient with POTS, I have to figure out which of these three is causing POTS in this patient. And it may not be just one, it could be two. A patient could have carry malformation and a pooling at the same time. And so it's, it's the question of treating each one of these. So coming to treatment of POTS, um, those who have pooling, they pull their blood down their legs and... You need to get that blood back up to their brain quickly <clears throat> that um so they the the symptoms that they'll have is lightheadedness it's very transient they'll have tachycardia which means their heartbeat fa- uh, is much faster brain fog fatigue all of these um the idea is that they're think of them as think of these people as being dehydrated their blood volume mm-hmm. is low. It's not low, it's normal, but it's all pulled down. So increasing their blood volume would make sense. And the way to increase blood volume is to drink more fluids. But the problem with drinking more fluids is that you pee it out. So to keep the fluids in, you need to take more salt. So the treatment underlying treatment for pots with, because of blood pooling is to take more salt and increase your fluids increase your electrolyte fluids, like sports drinks, and increase water. <clears throat> these are the treatments. Um, there's a new drug out in the market. Um, it's relatively new. It's been there around for a couple of years, and which I really love. Um, it's sold as um, under the brand name of Colonar, C-O-R-L-A-N-O-R. And that has been a game changer for treatment of POTS in these mm. patients. It's strictly approved for treatment of congestive heart failure. Uh, but I think insurance companies, I haven't seen too much pushback on that. And so I think insurance companies are pretty lenient about it, about its uses. Um, but it has been a game changer. One of the mistakes that, that I see a lot is patients, um, you know, they go to their physician and then they say, hey, listen, your heart rate is really too high and we need to lower it and they, give them, they, they are given beta blockers. Beta blockers are the group of drugs that lower your heart rate artificially. Here's the problem. Your heart is beating faster for a reason. It's because it's trying to pump all this blood to your brain. Now, if I take a beta blocker and I don't let my heart beat faster, then I'm worsening my POTS. Think of it like this. Your basement is flooded and you have a pump that's pumping out the water. And you, somebody goes in there and it and dials down the speed of this pump by giving beta blockers. Your 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 basement is going to stay mm-hmm. flooded. It's not going to empty at all. And that's why um, there's been papers and papers on using beta blockers for pots. And but in reality, it actually makes pots worse. Uh, and you know in the beginning i used to be also like okay let's give this patient a beta blocker but it doesn't make sense um, but coronor which is which has been a game changer has really made a difference the other drugs used are myodren which is kind of a eh drug you know it doesn't really it's a very temporary drug it's a very short acting drug um not really very helpful uh, you can take it um as a as needed basis um other things that you can do is you can wear compression stockings, st- tights, I'm sorry, compression tights. They should go up to your hips. That does help a little bit. Not a whole lot, but it does help. So these are some other, obviously, parts for other reasons from um, having adrenergic um, receptor antibodies is a different kind of treatment. You've got to treat the antibodies. And then treatment for um, from carry malformation that's a different whole different Mm -hmm. game
0: that was that was a great overview and i've researched on pods extensively and have you know tried a bunch of different things but i've even never heard of corlanor so that's a great tip i'm definitely going to be researching that um (coughs) because (coughs) excuse me that analogy you used about the basement flooding that that really makes a lot of sense and i've had similar concerns about beta blockers for a while because it it just it sort of seems to me, you know, kind of the equivalent of uh, you know, putting a band-aid or, you know, some kind of, you know, stop gap to stop the symptom, but it's not it does didn't seem to me to be addressing the actual underlying issue. And so um kudos to you for, you know, keeping up on the research and and pushing through and and trying to find Um, you know, the best solutions out there. Um, I've also heard that abdominal binders can be particularly helpful. And that just reminds me of how, um, you know, corsets used to be uh, very commonly worn, I believe by both men and women um, in, the years are going to get me, but, you know, this sort of 1700s to early 1900s. And, you know, obviously they were abused for, superficial reasons, you know, people tying their corsets so tight, like I've I've seen, um, like a liver of someone who wore a, a, a corset that was laced so tightly that the ribs were actually indenting the liver. So obviously, you know, we're not talking about corsets for vanity or, you know, hurting yourself. But I have often wondered if in getting rid of the corset and getting rid of that that binder and that support, if that um, kind of had some some side effects, especially for those of us who have more lax connective tissue and and spines that are a little bit more wiggly. Um, so I'm always on the lookout for kind of a modern um, adaptation of, of the corset kind of abdominal binding approach um, that would, you know, fit under clothes and, and not stand out too much as a medical device, but still be effective. Um,
1: shape wear. Yeah, it's called yeah, shape wear.
0: Yep.
1: yep. So you get this, well, shapewear. there are companies that manufacture it, and it's like a vest, mm-hmm. uh, so it's not just the abdomen, but the whole, um, and it does help with other symptoms of ADS, especially like ribs subluxation, mm-hmm. and shapewear, too, it's like a vest, but it's a little compressive, mm-hmm. and so it's. bigger corset and it does work well plus it Mm -hmm. makes you look good so yeah total
0: win-win um of the patients that you see with eds or other hypermobility conditions and pots what is their general trajectory again i know we're talking about extremely varied population but do many patients seem to get better with treatment or are there phases of flares and remission or is it just completely variable from person to person
1: Kerry, before I get into that question, there's one other thing I mm-hmm. wanted to mention about mm-hmm. POTS. So you remember how I said that um, when the, when your blood pulls down your legs, your autonomic nervous system starts to work harder. This autonomic nervous system is called the sympathetic nervous system. It's the same nervous system that controls flight or fight. Mm-hmm. So your flight and fight, you know, you know, when you see, let's say when you see a snake, your flight and fight um mechanism Mm -hmm. kicks in which means your sympathetic nervous system gets revved up that means your heart is beating faster your muscles are pumping more and all that and so and it causes a sense of anxiety now (laughs) oftentimes patients with POTS will have this sense of anxiety they might be just sitting there watching a you know nice uh, romantic movie nothing's going on everything is fine um all of a sudden, a wave of anxiety passes through them, almost akin to a, po- uh, a sort of a post-traumatic stress or just a wave of anxiety Just just passes mm-hmm. through them. Uh, and that's just your parts uh, getting worse. It's not a true anxiety. It's not something that's coming from mm-hmm. your brain, but it's your nervous system that's working extra hard to maintain your blood circulation. <clears throat> So the treatment, the reason I said this was because this the treatment of this anxiety would lie in treating POTS, and not because this anxiety is coming from your brain where you take anxiety medicines. So one of the things I wanted to mention was we talked about POTS and we talked about mass cell activation syndrome, and what happens when you have, say you're feeling awful, and you need to we need to figure out what's who's who's acting up right now if if it's pain if your pain is worse everything hurts then it's your mast cell it feels like you're getting a flu like symptoms everything is achy everything is more painful then it's probably your mast cell flaring up you know in that case take extra doses of your mast cell medications if you are starting to feel really brain fogged and fatigued and just your heart is beating faster or you've got one of those watches your apple watch is showing up your heart rate as being 110 120 that's your pots getting flared up this is the point where you take a tablespoon of salt and you check it down with some electrolyte fluids and that'll take care of the pots so it's really important to know what's the flare up if it's a pots flare up or a mast cell flare up now Sometimes a mast cell flare-up flare up can trigger a parts flare-up. So you can have symptoms of both. Mm-hmm. And so when you're in a situation like that, you need to aggressively treat both. And that should make a difference.
0: That's a great point. Yeah, thank you for for mentioning that. And these things are also interrelated. And one flaring, one can flare another. And it can be so hard to tease out, you know, what is the original origination of what's going on and, you know, what are kind of the knock-on, you know, side effects or additional effects. Um, so that's, that's a great observation. Thanks for, thanks for adding that.
1: Now, um, so in terms of your original question about the general trajectory Mm -hmm. of patients with POTS, ES, hypermobility, all of these, um, you know, the way I look at it is I, the, the goal here is to get you functional, and to make sure that you have more good days than bad days, we all have good days and bad days. Health-wise, there are some days that you know, and it's not just particular to EDS and parts or mast cell. Even non-EDS patients will have good days and bad days in terms of their health. And so, <clears throat> the idea behind treating all this is to get more good days than bad days. And if it if you know and if it's obviously if you're not seeing enough good days then it's time to uh, tweak the treatment a little bit more to get more good days but don't expect that it'll go away forever we don't it doesn't go away forever it'll not cure there's no it's not like it's a cure but it's an idea it's the i the general idea is that um, it'll be it is to make you much more functional and one of the things i have to say like you know i see a lot of complex conditions and eds is just one of them and of all of these complex conditions the most resilient patients are patients with eds it takes a lot to put them down and it takes a lot for them to admit that they have pain or they have all of these conditions they just Mm -hmm. push themselves and which is great but it's as physicians it's my job to give them that help that they need to push themselves and uh, that is to find out what are the treatments that work for them how can I get you more good days and bad days and what is it on bad days is there something that you're doing particularly that might be making giving you that bad day figuring out that is the key here but trajectory in general is pretty good if you if you just have to sort of try the treatments give it time to work Nothing happens instantly. Mm -hmm. So you have to give it some time and then you start to see some improvement. So, in say three months or six months, you start to see, all right, now I'm doing a little better than before. That's what you're looking at, not a day to day change.
0: That's such an important insight. And I thank you for raising it because I think we get a lot of messages from our culture and kind of this go, 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 no pain, no gain world that we live in, um, you know, it, it almost feels like there's no space for bad days for, for a lot of people. And the truth is everyone of every health profile, every, you know, the healthiest person there is, what you know, whoever that is, um, to people who are struggling immensely, you know, there's always an up and down, um, and and cyclical nature of you know our neurochemicals get depleted and so we'll have a down day or our um, hormones or all kinds of different things can cause us to have these good and bad days and so I thank you for mentioning that because when we're having one of those bad days and I know this is something I've experienced it can feel like oh no this is a downward slope you know I'm just heading down 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 but If, you know, when we can have that knowledge and take a step back and say, okay, nope, today I'm not feeling great, I need to rest or, you know, load up on my electrolytes, take it easy, um, and then, you know, see how I'm feeling tomorrow and the next day and see this as a broader pattern. I think that's a really helpful approach because... Unfortunately, you know, when it comes to EDS, like, like you said, people can push through quite a lot. And and in my experience, talking to patients with EDS and all types of hypermobility conditions, these are some of the most resilient, strong people out there. And yet when we get, you know, floored and knocked down, you know, it, it hits us hard. And, and that can be really difficult, you know, on our ego, on our lives, and we have things that we need to get done. Um, And so, you know, thank you for pointing out, you know, kind of that that really important concept that there there are ups and downs and learning how to mediate those and and work within them is incredibly important. So do you have any other observations from your work in treating patients with EDS and hypermobility conditions and POTS that you would like to share? Any other kind of useful tidbits or anything else to add before we move on?
1: Yes, I do. Okay. okay. For POTS. Actually, it's more for okay. fatigue. And,
0: and that's my next um, topic, so that's perfect. <laughs> the
1: re- so there are lots of reasons why mm-hmm. people have fatigue. And, um, you know, starting from EDS itself to uh, POTS to mass cell activation syndrome, medicines there are lots of reasons why people have fatigue but POTS is actually POTS and muscle are one of the bigger ones now in POTS one of the things that I found out was that you know giving people asking them to take more salt and more electrolytes is not always a workable solution because a lot of them have GI issues and they are nauseous and they have bloating and they can't drink that much amount of water and every day you got to take all those salt pills it's it's a little difficult <clears throat> and then and then when the fatigue when fatigue kicks in so the definition of it that's my definition of fatigue is that it's tiredness that does not go away with rest and one of the things you can do when you're when you're having a tremendous amount of fatigue is um it's called a sequential compression device um, for those who have been admitted to a hospital well we'll remember that they put this thing wrap this thing around your leg and they connect it to this little pump and it goes squeeze 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 all the way up so it squeezes your ankles then your calf then your thighs and then it starts the cycle again so what it's trying to do is it's trying to pump blood back up to your brain they put this device it's called sequential compression device they put this on every patient to avoid clots now You can actually buy this on amazon and it's it isn't sold as sequential compression device it is sold as a leg massager so if you look at a leg massager um, they have this you wrap it around your basically your whole leg you wrap it around and then you plug it in and then you can uh, choose the sequential compression so it pumps it squeezes the ankles first then it squeezes the calf and then it squeezes the thighs so it's really just pump doing the same work that your body is supposed to do, but can't do it. Is pumping this blood back up for you. <clears throat> That's one. The other one is to um, use home oxygen. Now, well, I I don't have a great explanation for this, but what we've noticed is that when patients with mass cell activation syndrome and POTS use home oxygen even though their oxygen concentration on the pulse oximeter is, is normal, but when they when they use oxygen, it does make a big difference to them in terms of their fatigue. And the theory is that on a very microscopic level that this there tissue is not getting enough oxygen. So your finger might, you know, when you put a pulse oximeter on it, it may look normal, but on a microscopic level, not every tissue is getting enough oxygen. So adding that little extra oxygen makes a difference. And honestly, I don't have a great explanation, but I can tell you that it does work. And we've been doing this for years. You can buy a home oxygen concentrator for a couple of hundred bucks. It manufactures oxygen. So you plug it in and it manufactures oxygen. The general recommendation that I have is you use nasal prongs one of those things you stick in your nose. You can buy it on Amazon for 10 bucks. And you, we, I recommend two liters per minute uh, for 20 minutes twice a day. Uh, more if you're having a bad day. And the same thing with the leg massager slash sequential compression device. 20 minutes twice a day. Or if you're having a bad day, you can do it more. Um, one of the things you can do is while your work was, you know, it's, Kids that are work doing studying at home on their computer or doing um, homeschooling and things like that, or people working from home, they get they can plug it in and continue to work. The leg massager brand that I have looked at is um, it's it's got a cheesy name. It's called Fit King, okay. and they have several different. The reason I'm saying this is because I am trying to save people from sort of looking around yeah. and hunting around. So it's called Fit. Uh, F.I.T. King, and um, they have different models, but there's one model that goes all the way up their legs, and they can pump that. Uh, they can plug that in. Home oxygen concentrators. I didn't find them on Amazon, um, so you'll have to kind of look around and see what's in the market. Um, they cost a couple of hundred bucks. Uh, they're they're about the size of a old style, you know, stereo system. They're not too big. Uh there are even portable versions. But these do so what you're trying, so now what you're doing is you're you're doing the same thing that your nervous system is supposed to do. You're pumping this blood back up to your brain, and you're adding that little extra oxygen that your microtissue on a micro m- circulation needs. And that, and these two have been shown to help with fatigue quite a bit. Actually, fatigue and brain fog.
0: Those are fantastic tips. And I had actually just heard from someone um, on this leg massager issue. I think the one they suggested was hyper ice. Um, I could be getting the name of that one wrong, but it sounds like that's a really helpful part for this, this person that reached out, um, that that's been really helpful. And it just makes sense um, because a lot of us have circulation issues, you know, chronically cold feet and hands, um, and so getting some kind of external um, support to to do what the blood vessels should be doing um, seems right on point for what we need. And that's very interesting about the home oxygen uh, concentrators. I've been looking for some time to try to find like a barometric tank to go to and trying to find under the insurance. But I didn't realize that that was something that you could do at home. And so that sounds tremendously helpful because you know a lot of us you know fatigue is one of the biggest issues that people with eds mcats and pots experience and and it's it can just be so debilitating to not be able to you know get the activities of daily living done and so that, that that's some wonderful very very useful and very specific advice um and I, i'm just endlessly impressed at how much Research and how diligent you are in following up and trying to find solutions for your patients. Um, and it, it's incredibly impressive. So just thank you again.
1: Kerry, um, I, I had to buy two of those FitKing ones. And the one I tried on myself and the other one I gave it to somebody who actually has POTS to test it. So I was doing my own little research I testing it. And uh, it does help. It does make a difference. I was surprised. That's, that's
0: fantastic. And and yeah, it goes back to this theory that we've talked a lot about on this podcast of like, you know, a lot of us are really suffering and there's a lot of people with very low quality of life. But if you can get 5 or 10% benefit here, I think we even talked about this on your on the last time you were interviewed. If you can get a little bit benefit here and a little bit benefit here. Well, you can, you know, start to put that together into, um, you know, meaningfully um, improving the quality of one's life. So and and I, I love that kind of uh, experimentation, especially on things like this that are really low risk, you know, like massager is, you know, probably, you know, very, very low risk of any kind of adverse um Thing coming out of that, so I, I love that thinking out of the box and um, and diligently looking for for new new ways to improve our lives. Um, I, on the topic of fatigue, are there any other insights or anything else that you'd like to share from you know your your extensive experience in working with these subset of patients?
1: Yes, um, there's. There's another reason for fatigue that's called secondary mitochondrial mm-hmm. dysfunction, and <clears throat> now mitochondria are rechargeable batteries. They're, they live in our blood, in our body, in each cell. They're called mitochondria. You know, they get recharged, discharged, and that's how we function. Um, in some conditions, uh, some chronic conditions, especially people with mast cell activation syndrome, they may develop uh dysfunction of these mitochondria so these batteries aren't being charged all the way or they're not discharging all the way and um so that's called secondary mitochondrial dysfunction because there's something called a primary mitochondrial dysfunction which is a whole different animal and it's the so that so that kind of a decision to whether I should treat somebody for secondary mitochondrial dysfunction is based on an answer to one question and that is when you have fatigue when you're tired and if you rest for some time let's say you rest for an hour or two just sit on a couch or lie down for some time do you get back some of your energy for a short time even and if the answer to that is yes then i always think of secondary mitochondrial dysfunction so when they rest they are now recharging their batteries literally recharging their batteries and In this case, they would benefit from treating their secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. Now, the treatment of secondary mitochondrial dysfunction is based on giving them a boatload of supplements. There's a whole set of supplements that they can be given. It's a mixture. And so it's called mitochondrial cocktail. And there are some that you can, um, I believe you can, there are some that are on the market you can buy and some that you can have the compounding pharmacy make it. And um, that sort of helps with the secondary uh, mitochondrial dysfunction and fatigue.
0: Interesting, I had never heard of that before either. Um, What are the components of a mitochondrial cocktail? Or I guess, how would one go about even asking for something like that? Um...
1: I, for me, I, I, this was years ago, I worked with a pharmacist and we both sat down and we came up with the ingredients that should be in it. And so I just ordered it from that pharmacy. But there is, um, there's one company and they, it's, it's, it's actually sold by uh Dr. Richard Bowles, he has a company that sells it. Dr. Bowles has done a lot of work on mitochondria. And he has one, um, and I forget the name right now, but if you if you Google that you might find it, uh, Richard Bowles, he's a geneticist, I believe, in in um California. And he's come up with a, a formulation, it's commercially available. And you can um, try that. Uh but I believe if you ask a compounding pharmacy, they might have some recommendations. They might have some sort of a template that they might use. But if you want, I mean I can I can send you what I I have in my this yeah. thing. And you know, your readers mm-hmm. can use that. That's I can Yeah, that. that would
0: be great. Um, because I, I'd never heard of that one either, but it makes perfect sense. I've suspected some kind of mitochondrial issue, you know, for a while, just given the, the severe levels of fatigue after sometimes, you know, seemingly even small levels of exertion and it can kind of add up. So I think that's a great insight and that's really onto something. Um, on the topic of fatigue um, interrelated with fatigue is of course getting good quality sleep, which is a huge issue for so many patients um, that have EDS um, and I know uh, you know, hundreds of books have been written. There's a ton on this, but are there any specific insights about um, improving sleep quality or any medications or approaches that you've seen um, in working with um, you know this patient population that you've seen helpful in getting to a better quality of sleep regimen?
1: De Vego. The drug is called Day, D-A-V, sorry, D-A-Y-V-I-G-O, Day Vigo. This is one drug that has been a game changer. I have struggled with finding the right drug for sleep in patients with EDS, and nothing has worked. I mean, I have tried everything. Uh, Nothing has worked. But this drug, which is relatively new, seems to work um it's called Devigo, um and it's um it's a prescription drug and that that's where I'm starting to see some good results um it's it's a it's a pain in the neck to get it approved um, but once you get that approved uh, it does seem to make a difference I'm getting some good feedback
0: that's a great tip. And yet another thing that I had never even heard of before. So thanks for sharing. And it it is, it never ceases to impress me how up on the literature you are. I know your practice is incredibly busy and yet you still stay informed on these. You really are the ultimate role model in my mind of, you know, what I think of as kind of the ideal doctor. So amazing work. I'm, I'm constantly floored in talking to you. <laughs>
1: Harry, thank you very much for that. But no, I'm not an amazing doctor. I'm just a regular guy who works the same as anyone else. But I just wanted to tell you, um, among other things. So one of the reasons I think people with EDs don't sleep well is because their sympathetic nervous system drive is very high. So they're they have a lot of adrenaline running around in their blood. That's the problem. And so when they go to sleep, there's so much adrenaline that they can't sleep. And there there's so much adrenaline is because they're because their parts is acting up and so one of the things i recommend is um drinking um uh, drinking some electrolyte fluids uh before bed i know you think like okay it's gonna wake me up to pee but you know firstly it won't if you're drinking electrolyte fluids number two even if it does i mean it's still you you can get some good quality of sleep even if you have to wake up a couple of times to pee it's still worth it um <clears throat> so that's one of the things you can try and then the, there's there's all sorts of gimmicks out there n- nothing that's really worth it uh, there are apps and there's all sorts of things uh none of them work really well but and I've tried them for years and years we've tried them on our patients what really works on these pee this this is a this new drug that i've come across called davigo is kind of a game changer much like Coronar. and again coronor might be also helping with sleep i i don't know uh, if it's helping your pots it's probably helping your sleep also at the same time
0: absolutely yeah you've shared so much amazing information and i'm so glad that there are new treatments coming out that's incredibly exciting um one last topic because we've been going for quite a while here I you know I could talk to you forever but um a, a topic that you actually mentioned and that something that I've been experiencing recently so I'm very curious to hear your thoughts um facial pain um what are your thoughts on EDS hypermobility and pain in the face
1: so we're starting to see this a little more um you know people there are some people there's a subset of people with EDS that have this pretty excruciating pain in one half of their face or both half of their faces, um, and it's associated with, uh, difficulty swallowing. It sort of hurts when they swallow. Um, they, it almost also, they might say, they might complain that there's something stuck in their throat. Um, so the condition that I'm referring to is called Eagle syndrome, Mm -hmm. like the bird Eagle. It's called Eagle syndrome and they have difficulty with swallowing uh, they may have it feels like there's something stuck in their throat all the time um the the big one is that they have a shooting pain that goes from their throat um, to their ear or jaw and it's really painful it's a sharp mm-hmm. shooting pain they may they do their throat hurts now you can have throat pain for two reasons you can have it from mast cell activation syndrome or you can have it from uh, eagle syndrome the difference is that the pain from mast cell is not as bad it's more like a scratchy pain whereas the pain from eagle syndrome is severe and excruciating Um, they their pain gets worse when they turn their head to one side so the jaw pain and the throat pain gets worse when they turn their head to one side They may or may not have a ringing in their ears. Um, They definitely have a headache. There's a throbbing sensation in their jaw. These are some of the common symptoms. There are other symptoms also. Um, Now, let me explain what Eagle syndrome is. It's a treatable condition. Um, So there's a little little bone that that sort of uh, grows out from the base of the skull, right kind of behind the jaw um behind between the, behind the angle of the jaw there is a little bone that comes out it's called the styloid pr- process and in some of these patients in some patients the styloid process starts to grow and it becomes elongated and when it gets elongated it may, it may either press on a nerve or it may press on an artery if it press on a, presses on presses on an artery then they also have dizziness at the same time but if most often it presses on a on a nerve and that nerve then causes this um, excruciating pain in their throat their jaw their teeth hurt um, and it gets worse when they turn their head and in some cases you can actually well I can at least uh, put my thumb in there a finger in there and I below the jaw and I can feel the styloid process or you can actually put your finger in there and the pain gets worse Um, so the reason I'm bringing this I wanted to bring this up was because I'm starting to see more and more patients with Eagle syndrome and it's considered to be a very rare condition but we're starting to understand that you know rare is a very um vague term now because EDS used to be considered as a vague condition but it's definitely not rare mm-hmm. and so are we missing these conditions with Eagle syndrome people coming with facial pain being told or trigeminal neuralgia or mm-hmm. something like that. But this, um, this is completely treatable. It can be diagnosed with an MRI. And the treatment, unfortunately, is a surgery. Um, but the, the results of the surgery are remarkable. And I wanted to bring that up to you. Yeah,
0: thank you. And what kind of MRI, is it an MRI of the jaw joint or what? so
1: that depends on who you talk to and some people will say that it's um you don't need an mri an x-ray will do um but in talking to the neurosurgeons um at least the neurosurgeon that i trust um a ct angiogram um so you get a ct with an angiogram um, it's called venous phase so you get it in the in the flow in the veins and then you and you get an the ct scan should extend from the base of the skull to c7 and they should be able to see it but that's far that's very specific but um getting an mri looking at the base of the skull um, a good radiologist should be able to at least get a sense of the length of the styloid process The only problem is um, that sometimes it's not a bone. There's a ligament at the end of the styloid process that extends downwards, and that ligament will not show up on an X-ray, and it may not show up on an MRI also. So it's compressing an artery there, or it's compressing a nerve, but it's invisible on an MRI, or it may not show up clearly on an MRI. Um, So, the diagnosis of most conditions is based on not just an MRI mm-hmm. it's based on it's based on connecting the dots so clinical presentation does the patient complain of severe throat pain the pain that gets worse with turning their head to one side throat pain jaw pain teeth pain um, all of that uh, an examination so a, a physician can examine them they can actually Put their finger into their throat and feel for the styloid process and be able to reproduce that pain that's another in a uh, sort of an examination will help then you start looking for a uh, uh, an mri or a ct angiogram as i just mentioned um, and then to confirm you can actually they, they can actually do a nerve block there so they can inject a little bit of uh, a local anesthetic and So basically, you're numbing that nerve, and the pain should go away, temporarily at least. That's fascinating. And that points to... um, The problem is that it's not always a bone growth. The problem is that there could be a ligament at the end of the bone, which is not as visible on on an X-ray or Mm an MRI.
0: Yeah. And here's looking forward to some better imaging technologies that can really see those ligaments because I think that's the key for a lot of connective tissue issues. I think a lot gets um, missed because I think, you know, our ligaments obviously can do all sorts of wonky things that can really throw things off, but that's fascinating. And thanks for sharing your insight on that. I had never heard of that either. Um, one last question that I just was reminded of after reading some um, some of your papers again recently, I saw a mention of the drug uh, Nefopam. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but um, it, have you have you had success with this in some patients? I guess what are your thoughts on Nefopam? Uh,
1: Nefopam is um, is a painkiller that works on the central nervous system. It's not available in the U.S um actually let me make sure um it's available abroad and it works in the central nervous system it's not an opioid and it's not a um NSAID that is it's not an anti-inflammatory drug but it does help with pain um it's not it's not you don't you can you don't get it in the US uh, it's a I don't even know which countries. I'm guessing it's available in. Interesting. Europe. I wonder
0: why it's not available uh, here. So not even compounding pharmacies will do it. Interesting. No. no. I
1: wonder why that is. Yeah it's it's a it's 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 a it's a different class of drug. It's it's a class by itself, and it works on the central nervous system. It works like an opioid, but it's not an opioid. It works like an anti-inflammatory drug, but it's not an anti-inflammatory drug. And um, I don't have a lot of experience with it, obviously, because I can't prescribe it. Um, But it's something to think about. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I'm going to look into that more.
1: you You have listeners from other countries and they can probably give you some idea of whether to helps. Yeah,
0: Yeah, if there's any listeners out there outside the U.S. who have had or tried Nefapam, very curious to hear of your experiences. Um, and I'm going to be looking into this a little bit more and see why it's not available here, because it seems like we need all the pain treatment options we can get, um, especially in this day and age where opioids are so kind of stigmatized and not available for many people. Um, I was really encouraged when I saw this new medication that was a non-opioid, but appeared to act in the central nervous system. But ugh, it's a little disheartening to hear that's yet another dead end. As
1: No, it may, it may not be because now with the whole opioid, see, this is sometimes when bad things happen, um, good things come out of it also. So now with the opioid crisis, no one, nobody wants to write opioids, which is kind of a bummer because yeah. there's a lot of people out yeah. there suffering. But it puts pressure on, on the pharmaceutical industry to come up with other painkillers. And so some good comes out of something bad and maybe nefopam will come up in the US, maybe other drugs uh, that might come up that'll help pain. But one other the that I wanted to mention was that it's all right to use painkillers, whichever form you use painkillers, that's fine but the eventual treatment for pain is Mm -hmm. to treat the cause of the pain Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. the key here it's very simple if you have a flat tire there's not you can you can fill it with some air and drive Mm -hmm. a little bit more but at the end of the day you have to change you have to fix the flat and that's how it is if you have if your mast cell activation syndrome is bad enough it's severe Treating that would make a lot more sense because it takes care of the inflammation that's going on.
0: Absolutely.
1: That's the key. Definitely.
0: And that's a great point to return to. I love that flat tire analogy. It, it makes perfect sense. And it's so appropriate here. And so much of the treatment for EDS is those kind of Band-Aid type approaches like filling the flat tire and it's it's unfortunate that you know there's a lot of physicians out there who just will not treat patients with EDS. I hear that time and time again. I've experienced it, and frankly, I see it as a form of discrimination. I don't know any other condition where you know doctors will just say, "No, I, I refuse to treat this." You know, I, I I'm not curious, and it's really problematic. But to me, that that again just speaks to um, how how wonderful you are. And I'm just endlessly impressed by your knowledge and your compassion and your tireless um, work in trying to improve the lives of people with these conditions and promoting awareness among doctors at the same time. So thank you so much for joining us today Mm -hmm. and for all of your advocacy and investigation into these issues. We appreciate you so, so very much, Dr. Chobra.
1: Thank you, Carrie. It is a pleasure to talk about Um, and help your uh, listeners in any way I can if 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 it helps even one person I think our job is done
0: that's exactly that's how I think too Um, and again, absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Um, looking forward to speaking and working with you again in the future, but that's all for this episode. Thanks again to Dr. Chopra for his time. And again, for his tireless work on behalf of those with EDS and hypermobility conditions, as always, feel free to reach out with any questions or feedback. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.